episode 67. How much money you got? I asked Cecil. He had 30 cents too, which made us even. We squandered our first nickels on the house of horrors, which scared us not at all. We entered a black seventh grade room and were led around by the temporary ghoul in residence and were made to touch several objects alleged to be component parts of a human being. Here's his eyes, we were told when we touched two peeled grapes on a saucer. Here's his heart, which felt like raw liver. These are his innards, and our hands were thrust into a plate of cold spaghetti. Cecil and I visited several booths. We each bought a sack of Mrs. Judge Taylor's homemade divinity. I wanted to bob for apples, but Cecil said it wasn't sanitary. His mother said he might catch something from everybody's heads having been in the same tub. Ain't nothing around town now to catch, I protested. But Cecil said his mother said it was unsanitary to eat after folks. I later asked Aunt Alexandra about this, and she said... People who held such views were usually climbers. We were about to purchase a blob of taffy when Mrs. Merriweather's runners appeared and told us to go backstage. It was time to get ready. The auditorium was filling with people. The Maycomb County High School Band had assembled in front below the stage. The stage footlights were on and the red velvet curtain rippled and billowed from the scurrying going on behind it. Backstage, Cecil and I found the narrow hallway teeming with people. Adults in homemade three-corner hats, Confederate caps, Spanish-American war hats, and World War helmets. Children dressed as various agricultural enterprises crowded around the one small window. Somebody's mashed my costume, I wailed in dismay. Mrs. Merriweather galloped to me, reshaped the chicken wire, and thrust me inside. "'Y'all right in there, Scout?' asked Cecil. "'You sound so far off like you was on the other side of a hill.' "'You don't sound any nearer,' I said. The band played the national anthem, and we heard the audience rise. Then the bass drum sounded. Mrs. Merriweather, stationed behind her lectern beside the band, said, Makeham County, ad astra per aspera. The bass drum boomed again. That means, said Mrs. Merriweather, translating for the rustic elements, from the mud to the stars. A pageant, she added, it seemed to me, unnecessarily. Reckon they wouldn't know it what it was if she didn't tell them, whispered Cecil, who was immediately shushed. The whole town knows it, I breathed. But the country folks have come in, Cecil said. Be quiet back there, a man's voice ordered, and we were silent. The bass drum went boom with every sentence Miss Merriweather uttered. She chanted mournfully about Maycomb County being older than the state, that it was part of the Mississippi and Alabama territories, that the first white man to set foot in the virgin forest was the probate judge's great-grandfather, five times removed, who was never heard of again. Then came the fearless Colonel Maycomb, for whom the county was named. 
Andrew Jackson appointed him to a position of authority, and Colonel Makem's misplaced self-confidence and slender sense of direction brought disaster to all who rode with him in the Creek Indian Wars. Colonel Makem persevered in his efforts to make the region safe for democracy, but his first campaign was his last. His orders, relayed to him by a friendly Indian runner, were to move south. After consulting a tree to ascertain from its lichen which way was south, and taking no lip from the subordinates who ventured to correct him, Colonel Makem set out on a purposeful journey to rout the enemy and entangled his troops so far northwest in the forest primeval that they were eventually rescued by settlers moving inland. Mrs. Merriweather gave a 30-minute description of Colonel Makem's exploits. I discovered that if I bent my knees, I could tuck them under my costume and more or less sit. I sat down, listened to Mrs. Merriweather's drone and the bass drum's boom and was soon fast asleep. They said later that Mrs. Merriweather was putting her all into the grand finale, that she had crooned pork with a confidence born of pine trees and butter beans entering on cue. She waited for a few seconds, then called pork. When nothing materialized, she yelled, pork! I must have heard her in my sleep, or the band playing Dixie woke me, but it was when Mrs. Merriweather triumphantly mounted the stage with the state flag that I chose to make my entrance. Chose is incorrect. I thought I'd better catch up with the rest of them. They told me later that Judge Taylor went out behind the auditorium and stood there slapping his knees so hard Mrs. Taylor brought him a glass of water and one of his pills. Mrs. Merriweather seemed to have a hit. Everybody was cheering so. But she caught me backstage and told me I had ruined her pageant. She made me feel awful. But when Jem came to fetch me, he was sympathetic. He said he couldn't see my costume much from where he was sitting. How he could tell I was feeling bad under my costume, I didn't know, but he said I did all right. I just came in a little late, that was all. Jem was becoming almost as good as Atticus at making you feel right when things were wrong. Almost. Not even Jem could make me go through that crowd, and he consented to wait backstage with me until the audience left. You want to take it off, Scout? he asked. No, I'll just keep it on, I said. I, I could hide my mortification under it. You all want to ride home, someone asked. No, sir, thank you, I heard Jim say. It's just a little walk. Be careful of Haints, the voice said. Better still, tell the Haints to be careful of Scout. There aren't many folks left now, Jim told me. Let's go. We went through the auditorium to the hallway, then down the steps. It was still black dark. The remaining cars were parked on the other side of the building and their headlights were little help. If some of them were going in our direction, we could see better, said Jim. Here, Scout, let me hold on to your hawk. You might lose your balance. I can see all right. Yeah, but you might lose your balance. I felt a slight pressure on my head and assumed that Jim had grabbed that end of the ham. 
You got me? Uh-huh. We began crossing the black schoolyard, straining to see our feet. Jim, I said, I forgot my shoes. They're back behind the stage. Well, let's go get them. But as we turned around, the auditorium lights went off. You can get them tomorrow, he said. But tomorrow's Sunday, I protested as Jim turned me homeward. Well, you can get the janitor to let you in. Scout? Hmm? Nothing. Jim hadn't started that in a long time. I wondered what he was thinking. He'd tell me when he wanted to, probably when we got home. I felt his fingers press the top of my costume. Too hard, it seemed. I shook my head. Jim, you don't have to hush a minute, Scout, he said, punching me. We walked along silently. Minutes up, I said. What you thinking about? I turned to look at him, but his outline was barely visible. Thought I heard something, he said. Stop a minute. We stopped. Hear anything, he asked. No. We had not gone five paces before he made me stop again. Jim, are you trying to scare me? You know I'm too old for that. Be quiet, he said, and I knew he was not joking. The night was still. I could hear his breath coming easily beside me. Occasionally there was a sudden breeze that hit my bare legs, but it was all that remained of a promised windy night. This was the stillness before a thunderstorm. We listened. Heard an old dog just then, I said. It's not that, Jim answered. I hear it when we're walking along, but when we stop, I don't hear it. You hear my costume rustling. Oh, it's just Halloween, gotcha. I said it more to convince myself than Jim, for sure enough, as we began walking, I heard what he was talking about. It was not my costume. 